This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. Welcome to the Center for Sports Studies podcast. My name is Brandon Podgorski, Professor of Sport Management at Trine University, and I want to welcome you to this week's podcast. Today is a special podcast as we talk with Trine Exercise Science Capstone students, Carly Acker and Taylor Woodcock, along with faculty advisor, Lauren Coxes, and discuss their research into potential effects of COVID-19 on lung capacity. I hope you enjoy. Well, Lauren, Carly, Taylor, welcome. Happy to have you guys here with us today. And um, Carly, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about this study that you're conducting. So at first, we just thought it would be kind of a, an exploratory study. We didn't have anything set up for what we were going to find. Um, but basically what we did is we measured the lung capacity of all of our participants. And then we asked a few questions about their uh, overall just medical history and then whether they tested positive for COVID or not and some factors that went along with that as well. How did you come up with this study? Was this kind of a, a combination with you and Taylor got together and, and you came up with this? Was this something that um, your professor, like Professor Costas, um, kind of talked about and, and gave you some ideas? Why um, COVID-19 on or, or uh, the effects of, of COVID-19 on lung capacity? So actually, Lauren came to us with I, this idea. Um, we didn't actually know for sure what we wanted to do. And when she brought this up to us, we thought it would be kind of interesting just because there really isn't much research on the long-term effects of COVID. And that was what we were trying to more pinpoint with our study is to look at like the differentiating, like what can differentiate between like somebody who had COVID sooner rather than later and see if there's any different, different effects between the two people, so. So Taylor, as you guys went into this study, did you have some ideas or maybe a hypothesis of, of what you thought you might find? Um, or were you just kind of going in and, and just gonna kind of be directed wherever the research took you? We really didn't have, like Carly said, it was kind of exploratory. Mm -hmm. So I, we knew as far as lung capacity that men do tend to have uh, 10 to 12% higher uh, lung capacity than females. But other than that, we did not really know what we would expect to find. Uh, so we, it's kind of just where you went out there, collected the data and just interpreted it to see whatever we could find. Have you guys finished up with your research? Yeah, we, so we just, uh, we got all the participants through the study. We collected all of our data. We interpreted that data and we kind of figured out what the data showed and the differences between males and females, positive COVID uh, tests, negative COVID tests, close contacts with COVID uh, positive cases and non-close contact cases. And so um, Taylor, can you tell me what you guys found out? Have you made that available yet or? Am I letting the cat out of the bag by asking? One of the biggest things we found was as members of the sample, as they got closer in contact to COVID-19, that gap between like that 10 to 12% I met, uh, mentioned in lung capacity difference between male and females, that gap actually increased between men and, uh, males and females. 
uh, which we thought would, was very interesting because we hear all this about COVID-19 impacting your lungs and your lung capacity. And so we thought that it was very interesting as far as that aspect. And we also found that the closer you got, so if COVID-19, if you tested positive for COVID-19 or you were in considered close contact, that gap between males and females increased significantly. I believe among COVID-19 positive individuals, the male lung capacity um, exceeded female lung capacity by about 47.35%. Difference there was pretty significant. So that's interesting. So Carly, I'll come back to you and ask you, what do you think are some of the implications from that? Do you think this had a, a greater effect on, on women than men? Or um, did you see kind of like a significant difference there? So right now, what we're thinking is that it's actually impacting females more than it is males. From what our data was showing is that the uh, lung capacities of females who got COVID or were in close contact with people who had COVID were decreasing versus with men, it actually was increasing. From what our data says, it basically means that females are having a worse response just to the virus overall, whether they contracted it or not. So this is interesting because I don't know if we've heard, or at least I'll just speak personally, I don't know if I've heard a lot about the differences between men and women. We've heard a lot of the differences between like, you know, the elderly and the young and some of the impacts on that. Um, but this is definitely the first I've heard about differences as, as regarded to sex. So, you know, if, if you had to guess, and this may be a little bit of an unfair question, but if you had to guess, like, how could we use this going forward? Like, um, if you had to give advice to, to doctors or researchers or, or even just leaders in the community, um, do we need to be doing more to kind of educate people on some of these effects between men and women? Or um, is there anything like practically we can do to kind of help women if they contract COVID-19 a little bit more? Um, I think personally from this, I think that we, somebody or maybe even somebody at the school eventually could maybe get a study um, that involves like looking at just men or just women and maybe getting more into those long-term effects. And then you could probably make treatment plans for men and women based off of both of those, just because I mean, we all know that everybody needs individual-based treatment plans as is, but if you could have like a general treatment plan for COVID-19 for men and for women to follow, maybe that would be a better response for those who have contracted COVID-19. So Taylor, walk us through the study. How did this actually happen? Um, I know there was an email sent out. Um, from your professor uh, campus-wide asking people to, to volunteer for the study. And so what was the procedure after that? Uh, so yeah, we had three days set aside for, for testing with two hour periods uh, on those days. And we used, um, I believe it's 153, the, it's the turf room inside uh, Best Hall. And so we had two little tables set up um, more than six feet apart, just following all those regulations, of course. So individuals would sign up. Uh, we had a Google form. They would sign up for which day they preferred, and they were allowed to come in those two that between that two-hour period at their leisure. And so they would come in, and they would walk up to either Carly and I on one of the desks, and we'd have them sit down, 
and we kind of explain, hey, we're going to take the lung capacity. We'd walk them through like how uh, the procedure for it. So we'd ask questions um, that we would record in our little Google, uh, sorry, our Excel sheet. And then at the end of those questions, we'd take their resting heart rate and then we would instruct them to stand up and then they would remove their mask. We'd give them a nozzle for the spirometer. So it was nice and uh, disinfected for everybody who did the trial. And we'd instruct, instruct them that they're supposed to plug their nose, inhale as much as possible outside of the spirometer and then exhale for as long and forcibly as possible into the spirometer uh, for the reading. And we did this twice. The first one was just considered kind of a practice round just so they could get the hang of it because it is kind of a newer thing for people to be doing. And so we'd give them as much time as they needed to rest in between and they would do the trial yet again, plug their nose, inhale as forcibly as possible and then exhale again as forcibly as possible. And this process, usually didn't take more than 10 minutes for each individual. So I know they kind of appreciated that because they were in and, in and out and we got the, all the data and what we needed from them. Yeah, I did too. So I volunteered to do it and, and it was great. I, I was in and out. You guys did a great job and you followed all the protocols and, and it was very safe. Um, for those listening who, who have no idea, Taylor, what is a spirometer? Uh, so it actually, it reads how much uh, air you force out of your lungs and it's given in a milliliter reading and it's just a small little handheld device and it's kind of like round and it's got this little nozzle that comes off and that's where you actually force forcefully exhale into and then there's a dial right on the top that it will pick up and stick actually uh, right where the estimated uh, force of exhale uh, stops. So Carly, did you happen to notice any differences between those who reported that they had COVID and those who did not? Was there anything noticeable on that? So actually with our data, we were kind of stumped for a bit because at least for me, like personally, you, I went into the study thinking like, obviously people who contracted COVID would have a worse uh, lung capacity reading. And actually our data was kind of jumbled. It kind of said the opposite actually for like our overall group. Hmm. Um, so I, we personally with our data didn't actually see any differences between it. Um, but once we broke it down into different groups, we started to see more differences. Like we, uh, Taylor had brought up earlier, we broke down all of our participants into four different groups. So COVID positive, COVID negative, close contact to a COVID positive case and non-contact. Um, and once we broke down all of our participants into more groups, we started to see differences then. So I just wonder, I don't, I don't even know how to ask this question because I don't want to be unfair about it or, or you know, poison the jury or anything, but uh, is it reasonable for people who said that they, that they had COVID to where you know, the, the virus, it, it runs its course in the body. And then there, it seems like a large amount of people are able to get back to normal that what they were after the virus runs. Obviously it's gonna be different based on health factors and age. Um, but would that be fair to say, or, is, or do we still not know? 
So I, I think that that's, that's definitely a, a fair conclusion. Um, as we were sifting through the data, one of the limitations that we had to consider was that part of our sample population um, were student athletes. Mm. And so we had this sample population, this segment of our sample that was undergoing testing at regular frequencies and may have gotten a positive test without actually being symptomatic. And so it was kind of that mystery of those asymptomatic positives where there was enough of a viral load in the body, but they may not have, have exhibited any sort of um, symptoms or impacts from the virus um, that they maybe would have felt anything in terms of changes in the respiratory system. So there's definitely a lot of questions and a lot of variables. Um, and in fact, one thing that, that Carly had mentioned as we were kind of pouring over our data um, was that we, we, so we use spirometry in order to capture our data. And what we measured was forced vital capacity. Um, and even though spirometry is one of the most common PFTs that's done and these pulmonary function tests are commonly used to diagnose and to identify things like um, COPD and asthma and a number of respiratory conditions. Um, we started to consider really the fit of a PFT in diagnosing something like COVID. Um, and started to ponder what a VO2 max reading mm. may indicate. And perhaps we would see differences in that utilization and that uptake of oxygen as opposed to just changes in sheer lung volume. So in a, in a, in a nutshell, it's nuanced, right? Because <laughs> um, you know that was one of the things I was thinking when I first got, got the email. I'm like, oh, well, this is cool. I've never had a, a spirometry assessment. This will be really neat. I'm really interested. And I kind of went in just a little bit ignorant thinking, oh, I wonder if they'll measure my VO2 max through this as well. But, you know, obviously it's two different tests. And, and I think you're right. I mean, um, you know, just the, the tests that you can use, the population that you had to choose from. I mean, um, with student athletes or, or certainly younger generations, we're seeing one thing. But it'd be interesting if you run the same thing in, in a nursing home. You know, do we get the same results, right? So Lauren, let me, let me ask you, you've done a lot of cool things over there in exercise science with capstone studies. Um, I know there was one from a, another student who I think was looking at Hispanic communities, if I'm correct. So tell me just some of the things that you've been doing over there in exercise science. Oh gosh. Um, so one of the other projects that we're currently working on is the efficacy of red light therapy. Um, so red light therapy has recently come on and it's widely used in terms of like scar treatment and more dermatological stuff. Um, but we have a group of students who were actually able to secure a red light device. They got it donated from a manufacturer. Um, and they've been working with um, a number of participants here on campus within the community uh, to see if they can use infrared and near infrared lights in order to kind of modulate the way that muscle fibers are a healing and be being recruited in terms of different most uh, or different gross motor skills. So we're talking about like squat jumps and lunges and things like that. The participants in the study are undergoing 10 to 12 minute sessions of light therapy four to six times a week. And every week we're getting them on the force plate and looking at changes in force production and ground force reaction and vertical jump height. Um, so we're looking to see if there's going to be any long-term effects there. Um, it's definitely been, and I will tell you as an exercise science alum, we've come a very long way uh, from when I was here as a student in the lab and the resources that we've had 
but now we've got a full lab facility. We've got lots of equipment, lots more on the way. And just the opportunities that we have for the students now is just tenfold over what we had even just five, six years ago. I hear that a lot uh, across campus. I think that's one thing I enjoy. You know, I've been at Trine only four years, but that I, I love hearing is that, you know, the university has been really aggressive and coming up with new opportunities for students and, and giving them an a chance, not just to, you know, do research or write a paper, but actually do some things that, you know, might have implications down the line. It could help them down the line. So is there any plan to um, get this uh, possible research published or anything maybe down the line or that you've done in the past that you're looking to get published? Um, we, we do have one student who graduated May of last year who is currently in review um, in terms of being published. Um, so we are just kind of waiting and on the edge of our seats with that. Um, this study, I think we definitely have some great data. I think it's just very interesting to see that there's a bi-directional response in terms of gender to see that men who become infected with COVID, we see a very a statistically significant increase in their lung capacity compared to a non-COVID positive individual. But with women, we see the opposite response where their lung capacity is decreasing. Um, so there's something interesting there. I think it's definitely a springboard. Um, I think there's a lot of questions that it produces and it definitely sets a starting point for a lot of future research. Um, I think Carly's question about, you know, well, what about using VO2 max? I think that has stuck with me for the past couple of weeks. And I hope that that is something that she pursues in graduate school. Um, but I, yeah, I think this, it, it was interesting. And as Taylor mentioned, we kind of went into it blindly and we were just like, well, let's see what happened. And, and selfishly, I'll tell you that I, this question kind of arose and over that long stretch of winter break we had, I had the opportunity to kind of catch up on sports. And so I'm just watching basketball and getting caught up on all the games. And we're just starting to see these players are just kind of spontaneously collapsing. And then there's these questions that come back and it's well, COVID and myocarditis and there's inflammation around the heart muscle and the lining of the heart is becoming inflamed and irritated and they're tying it to COVID. And I'm like, surely there is some way that we can measure this or we can detect this in a means of, um, or in a way that's non-invasive and doesn't require putting somebody under anesthesia or stay in the hospital. And so I was like, well, let's, I mean, if we're seeing you know, these implications in the cardiorespiratory system, we should be able to see these on a PFT. Um, and so that was kind of how Curly and Taylor uh, got roped into this, pro this project. <laughs> Well, it sounds like it was a great experience for, for both Taylor and, and Carly. So um, let me ask you guys, Carly, we'll, we'll start with you. Uh, what are your plans after graduation and, and how do you think this experience is gonna help you down the line? So I'm actually planning on going to Trine's Doctor of Physical Therapy School in Fort Wayne after uh, graduation. So I'll start next August. Um, so I think just with this class in general, I actually had the decision between taking this class and another class. I decided to take this class just because I will be doing research in my graduate program. So I think just, I don't know specifically this project will follow me, but all the things that I've learned while doing this project will definitely help me uh, down along the line in graduate school for sure. Very good. And congratulations for, uh, for your acceptance into PT school. That's amazing. Thank you. Welcome. 
Uh, Taylor, same thing. What, what are your plans and, and how do you think this experience may help you um, in your career? Yeah, so I will be graduating uh, in just a couple of short, short weeks. And then I will be pursuing uh, my master's in sports administration. And one thing I, one big takeaway from this, um, as far as, because Carly mentioned it earlier, we were really, we were really caught on this data and what, what correlates, what the reasons for this happening and all this. One thing that I kind of figured out is the importance of problem solving mm. and how big problems take time and effort to kind of figure out what everything means and what direction we want to go with it. So I think that would definitely help me in the future. And I got to work with some great people in the study and got to work with people in my community, which is always a good takeaway. Well, you hit the nail on the head. That's a lot of what graduate school is. It's, it's problem solving and it's just kind of working through processes and, and papers. And I'm just so glad to see, you know, Professor Costas, you, um, bringing this opportunity for the students and allowing them to actually do some some research and, and giving them that experience. So I think it's just a great thing that we're doing here at Trine. And, um, you know, we've talked with Dr. Shane Steele in a, in a previous podcast um, and, and a lot of great things going on in exercise science. So, so Lauren, I'll, I'll give you maybe like 30 seconds here. If you had to make a pitch to a student who's listening, who's thinking about Trine or maybe somewhere else for exercise science, you know, why do they need to come here and and get uh, mentored under our amazing faculty and, and get to use our amazing resources. Having gone to a, um, a D1 graduate program and, and researching there after my bachelor's, I will tell you that it is very uncommon for students at the undergraduate level to have access to a lab so early in their career, to have opportunities to engage in research, to have opportunities to seek publication and to attend conferences and communicate their data and their knowledge and their experiences. And Trine is without a doubt, one of the very few places in my country that you'll get that as a student and not just in your senior year, but as early as that second semester in that freshman term. Fantastic. Well, um, Carly, Taylor, Lauren, really appreciate you guys taking some time today and uh, just looking forward to seeing what you guys do in the future. Thank you for having awesome. us. My pleasure. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. This is our last podcast of the school year, but we will still record monthly episodes during the summer. Be sure to check out our social media accounts for upcoming guests. As always, we'd like to say a special thank you to producer Josh Hornbacher for his work behind the scenes today. This is the Center for Sports Studies podcast broadcasting from the Trine Broadcasting Network. For more information about the Center for Sports Studies, please visit trine.edu. Also, be sure to like the Trine Center for Sports Studies on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TrineCSS. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.